Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment... So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Let me be honest with you. Let me be fair here. This passage, the emphasis is on the last half of the verse. The first part that I'm taking merely alludes to a well-accepted fact. We're all going to die. It's the part after that that is really the focus and the, the doctrinal uh, meat of this passage. But I'm not going to deal with the second half of it. That's not the purpose of my sermon today. I just wanted to find a common passage in the Bible that points to this simple fact. We're going to die. I, I hope that doesn't shock you. And let me deal with the issue of death today. First of all, let's put life in proper perspective from a biblical point of view. Life is short. The Bible tells us in a number of different passages of the brevity of life. I'm just going to point out a few of these for you. Psalm 39, 4. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Just, we can change so quickly. Job 7, 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. Now, he was, <clears throat> he was a little discouraged when he wrote that. Job 8, 9. Our days on earth are as a shadow. Job 14, 2. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers, and he also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Talking about man. James 4.14, a a very popular passage. Many of you will recognize this one. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Those are just samplings. I, I don't have to go on and read many, many, many more that point to this one simple fact. Your life is short. How many of you over 60 today will testify life is short? My goodness, you wake up one day and you realize you're on the downhill side. Where did it all go? What did you do with your life? How did it all go by so fast? And it's a perspective thing. I've told you before, when I was little, three, four, five, six, seven years old, it just seemed an eternity before I was going to be old enough to get to drive. They just couldn't even imagine waiting because if you're eight years old and you get to drive at 16 like we did in Missouri, that's twice your life. Just didn't ever seem like it was going to happen. Now that I'm 60 years old, 
I'm trying to slow the thing down. It's speeding up, and I'm pulling on the brakes, and I did slow down. Ten years. I've, I've measured life in, in increments of ten years many times in my life, from the 20s to the 30s, the 30s to the 40s, the 40s and 50s. But I realize in ten years I'm going to be making preparations for the end, if I even make it ten more years. Now it's getting kind of depressing, isn't it? Life is short. Number two, death is certain. This is a simile. It says, just like death comes once to a man. So that's an established thing. I'm not giving you any great revelation. So likewise, then he goes on to talk about Christ. Also, in the same sense in which death comes once, Christ died once. And he'll appear again to those that love him. And when we die, we're judged. God is going to assess, ultimately. And I don't want to get too deep into this because I don't have time for it all. But I, I am assuming this is going to raise some questions in people's minds about the judgment because we hear about the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema. We, hear, we read about the great white throne judgment in the 20th chapter of Revelation. And maybe there's some confusion about the judgment here. But we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There will be no wicked people standing before the judgment seat of Christ. That's a judgment for the rewards. And there'll be no righteous people standing before the great white throne judgment. Because that's a judgment of the wicked people. And they happen at totally different times. So, after we die, if we're in Christ, we die in faith, we're we're believers, then we're judged. And if you're a believer and you're going to stand before Christ to be judged, it's described a little bit by Paul about being like, bring your, bring your pile of stuff. And God says, well, let's see what you've got here. And he sets fire to it. And everything that is meaningless in your works and in your life and in your faith is like wood, hay, and stubble. It just goes up in smoke. And everything that has any eternal value to it is like silver, gold, precious stone, and it doesn't burn up. And that's what's left. So is your pile going to have anything left when the match is applied to it? That's the theological question. When you dig through the ashes of all the junk that's in your life and you get down searching for just a bit of gold or a bit of silver, What's going to be there? And then, of course, there's all kinds of questions about, okay, then what do we do in life that constitutes worthless stuff? And what really constitutes the things that really last for eternity? I I think most of you could take a stab at that and make a pretty good effort of of explaining the things that are are wood, hand stubble. Anything you're doing outside of the church that doesn't have anything to do with advancing the glory of God may not be wrong, it may not be wicked, but it's not advancing you spiritually. And it's not doing anything for the kingdom, that's wood, hay, and stubble. Anything you're doing for God that's advancing the kingdom and bringing glory to Him, that's gold and silver and precious stone. Life is short. Death is certain. There will be a judgment. Now, don't make too much out of this, it's appointed unto man wants to die. 
It's not intended to be a confusing thing because if we think on this long enough and talk about it long enough, somebody's inevitably going to ask the question, well, what about Lazarus? Or somebody's going to ask the question, what about all these testimonies of people that have died and they've gone to heaven and they came back? The author of Hebrews was not trying to address those special situations. So don't let it bother you. It's appointed under man wants to die. What that means is ultimately when we're done dying, (laughs) no matter how many times you die, (laughs) when you're done dying and it's over and you're not coming back, as a matter of fact, this statement about it's important that a man wants to die probably is more appropriate to explain our Christian position concerning reincarnation than it has to do with these little testimonies of I died and went to heaven and came back. Because we don't have to, we don't have to go through life and death again and again and again and again. We just live once and we die and when we're done dying and we stand before God, then there's going to be a judgment. Do you really Understand these things as lying in your future, those of you who are alive and here today. <laughs> and you'll <laughs> you can be the judge. <laughs> but the main point is that we have an appointment with death. And how much do you think about that every day that you live? I don't think we should agonize over the fact we're going to die. But it would do us good to think about it more often. I remember something very spooky happening in my, in my father. As he began to define his life and his activities and, and the things that were happening in terms of how long he was going to last. And I remember how very odd that was. He would buy a car and he would say, well, this one will last me now till I die. You know, the first time you hear that, it's very upsetting. And I thought, how strange, how absurd, how... And suddenly, I found myself doing the same thing. You know, you go out and you buy a refrigerator, supposed to last 10 years or 15 years, or you buy a a, a, a washer and drying set, 15 years, and you say, well, that's the last set of laundry equipment I'm going to have to buy in my life. You start thinking in terms of, this whole thing's winding down for me. I don't think it's unhealthy to be aware of that every day that you live. I'm not eternal yet. This life is temporary. And if we don't latch on to that, the temporal nature of life, we live carelessly. Think about how temporary this life is. And when it's all said and done, James says it's just like a vapor. It's just here, then gone. You've got to keep that in mind to be able to put this entire sermon in perspective today. Point number two. When we're talking about what happens after we die, are you ready to die? We have to obviously point to two things, heaven and hell. I want to deal with hell first as I wrestled with this because I thought that might be a real heavy note to end a sermon on. So... So I'll deal with hell first, and then we'll try and deal on an uplifting note about heaven. First of all, hell. Eternal damnation. Referred to in Scripture as eternal fire in Matthew 18, 18. Eternal punishment in the 25th chapter of Matthew. Eternal destruction. The blackness, 
the black darkness that has been reserved forever, is what Jude calls it. Unquenchable fire, Mark calls it. And by the way, that, that Greek word for unquenchable is, is uh, what we get our word asbestos from. And in the Greek, anytime you see a Greek word, uh, most, I mean, it's a, it's a common thing when, in the Greek when you see an A in front of it, A means not. A, sebestos. And sebestos means quenchable. So it, the Greek word itself, not quenchable. And it's because they found out they could take asbestos and, and uh, saturate it with oil and light it like a wick in a lantern. And it would burn and burn and burn and never burn up. Asbestos, not quenchable. So this unquenchable fire, Mark speaks of, is very definitely one that's not going to go out. It'll burn perpetually. But the question is, is hell real? And hell is losing the popularity game today. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to believe in it. And for many, they see the concept of a literal hell as being totally incompatible with their concept of God. They cannot fathom a God of love and the reality of the doctrine of hell. The arguments supporting the position are childish and they're painful to hear. And you've probably heard the arguments. They go something like this. God is a God of love. He would never send anyone to an eternal hell. Now, how many of you have heard that? The arguments go like this. Would you hold your child's hands over an open flame even for a minute? Well, what makes you think that God would send his children to burn in hell forever and ever and ever and ever? You wouldn't do that to your child. And, of course, the arguments go on to dismiss the concept of hell. We have this old saying about burying our heads in the sand. And it comes from the perceived notion of what an ostrich does. But an ostrich doesn't really do that. We made that up. But the odd part about it is we do. In a figurative sense. When we use that expression, burying your head in the sand, it means that we just choose not to look at the real world. We choose to cover our vision and ignore the dangers that are around us or the reality that upsets us around us. So the ostriches are not guilty, but we are. We bury our heads in the sand concerning the doctrine of hell because it's not a fun thing to talk about. We ignore the reality of hell. Sometimes we tend to ignore dangers. We rationalize that the odds are too minuscule to take the danger warnings seriously. That's why people continue to drive without seat belts. They are gambling. The odds are, I'm not going to be in a wreck, therefore I will not buckle my seat belts. So you're putting your head in the sand. You're ignoring a very real warning. Or you, you might put your head in the sand and ignore the dangers based on your own experience. It's never happened to me before. I don't believe it's ever going to happen to me. That's why we keep eating and drinking the things that have been proven to pose high risks to our health. Because it hadn't happened to me yet. Just bury our head in the sand. 
And the same way we do that, we ignore the dangers that are too disturbing to think about. And that's why when we get sick, some people just won't go to the doctor. I prefer not to think about it. I prefer not to know. And the same logic is what we use for why people refuse to believe in hell. They just don't want to deal with it if it's real. Now, the clearest description we have of hell comes from the 16th chapter of Luke in what we call the story of Lazarus and rich man. And one of the common objections that people have to this story is they say, oh, that's a parable. Now, let me deal with that for just a minute, if you will, please. First of all, you have to understand what a parable is. Breaking the word down, it literally means to lay down beside in order to draw a comparison. Parable. So you use an illustration to bring out a truth. You use an illustration we understand, we're familiar with, to help us understand that which we're not familiar with. A parable. What in that definition makes a parable a mother goose fairy tale automatically. It's using one truth to illustrate another truth. So when people say, and they dismiss the story of the rich man and Lazarus in the 16th chapter of Luke, oh, that's just a parable. What they are trying to say is, in other words, a parable is a fairy tale. It's an O. Henry short story. It's something that doesn't have any truth in it whatsoever. And they are ignorant of what a parable really is. That being said, even if it were a parable, it does not take away from the truth. But that being said, it's not a parable. Not as parables are defined in Scripture. You notice there is never a, a, an official parable that Jesus ever told that had proper names. They were always a certain person, a certain place, a father, generic descriptions of things that probably did happen all the time, very familiar uh, situations and scenarios that they could relate to. As he told these stories, they were thinking, yeah, I've been there, I've done that. I know a person that, that acts like that, or I lived that out myself. It was very familiar to him. But never once did he use a proper name in a parable. So here he says, there was a certain rich man. And there was a beggar named Lazarus. And all of a sudden we realize this is not a parable as the other parables are assessed. This, this is an actual story, real characters in it. So don't let anybody sidetrack you by saying, I don't believe in hell because the Bible doesn't teach us about hell. Furthermore, if it were a parable, which doesn't do away with the reality of the illustration being used. What's the point he's trying to make? That's another one you want to come back to. People say, oh, it's just a parable. Oh, really? What's the point? They don't know. Because the story is the point. You got a rich man. You have Lazarus. I'm not going to read the story. I think you're familiar enough with it. Fact number one from the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We all have an immediate destination the moment we die. 
I'm surprised at how many Christians don't even understand that. The minute you die, you are somewhere. Do you understand that, everybody? Do you understand that, new believers here today? The minute you draw your last breath and you are gone, you are somewhere. And very simply put, and I'll, I'll clarify this before I'm done, heaven or hell, I'll bring some, some detail to that a little bit later. If you allow me just to be generic. The minute you die, you're in heaven, you're in hell. One of the two. The righteous go to a place of comfort and peace. The wicked go to a place of torment. Fact number two from the story of the rich man and Lazarus. There is a consciousness and a sensation that we have after death. Lazarus was comforted. The rich man was in torment and begged for just a drop of water to cool his tongue. Fact number three. There is memory and awareness after you die. You think when you die you know nothing? Not true. You're very aware of your surroundings. The rich man was aware of his five brothers still living and on earth who needed to be warned about the reality of hell and made this, this interesting request. Send somebody to tell them so they don't come to this awful place. They've got the same witness as you had. Fact number four. Hell is not the final destination of the wicked. Hell is a place of torment, if the story of the rich man and Lazarus means anything. It is a place of punishment for those who died wicked and not in the Lord. But it's a temporary holding place until the conclusion of the great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand years, the millennium. And let's read what the Bible says about that in Revelation chapter 20. I'll start in the, in the seventh verse. When a thousand years are completed, that's the millennium. At that point, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now he moves to the vision of the great white throne. You see where this picture is after the thousand years? I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it and from whose presence the earth and the heaven fled away and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from those things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. This is not the judgment seat of Christ. This is the great white throne judgment. Nobody's going to pass here. It's all failure. And they were every one of them judged. And death and hell, or Hades, were thrown into the lake of fire. See, hell is thrown into the lake of fire. So hell's not the eternal abode and destination of the wicked. Hell is jail. The lake of fire is the prison. That's where you're going to be for eternity, if, if I would use a, a crude analogy. So temporarily, you are held in hell until all of the occupants of hell are called before the judgment seat of Christ and judged. And you say, well, why are they looking in the Lamb's Book of Life? It's proof. That's all it is. Here's proof. Is their name in there? Nope, it's not in there. And they are consigned forever into the lake of fire. 
Now, here's an interesting thing to think about. Even though we're just speculating, people are prone to ask this question. If people, the dead, are resurrected, the wicked dead are resurrected and judged, are they healed before they're cast into the lake of fire? You have to understand that we can't wrap our brain around this whole process of how they stand in their soul-spirit form before this, ju- this judgment, this great white throne judgment, and how they are tormented in that, in that state, in that spiritual state. And there's things that are so foreign to us in our physical realm that it, it kind of short-circuits us trying to get our brain wrapped around it. But there's nothing to indicate that like we who are sown in weakness and raised in power, sown in corruption and raised incorruptible, there's nothing to indicate that the wicked dead are raised without corruption. But it doesn't make any sense that everybody receives their healing and then they're judged to be tormented for eternity. And furthermore, we, we kind of loosely adhere to the concept that whenever we die and go to heaven, that we don't show up in heaven at the age in which we departed this world. How many of you are happy for that? Babies who go to heaven won't eternally be babies or toddlers, infants of arms. And old people who have worn this body out won't have to live in that decrepit condition for eternity. Oh, I knew you'd get excited somewhere along this line. And the old Church of God used to put it in their red book hymnal, I'll have a new body. Praise the Lord, I'll have a new life. A new body. I didn't like this one anyway. A perfect body. We don't see any indication that there are those kind of provisions for the wicked dead. Fact number five. Hell is no laughing matter. And people tend to caricature hell. Some have been so foolishly brazen as to say something like this. I want to go to hell. That's where all my friends are. It's a total ignorance of what hell is. It's lampooning hell. It's making fun of something that is really no laughing matter. Anybody who is so brazen as to make a statement like that does not understand hell. They don't understand what's going to happen when they die and enter into hell. Their first thoughts are not going to be, where are my friends? It's party time. That's not going to happen. You make the world's worst calculation. If you decide to treat hell as a myth and a big joke. Jesus was very clear on teaching the reality of hell. Several years ago, I had a friend of mine that told me the fascinating story of a young lady who was going through a rebellious time in her life, visiting his church, had not grown up in the church, living a rather wild and rambunctious life. And she was in his office, and he was talking to her and trying to tell her about the consequences of the way she was living. And don't you care? about what this is going to cost you. And she laughed it off. 
She had already set her mind to deny the reality of hell and the reality of whatever you sow that you shall also reap. And the pastor friend of mine was shocked and frustrated. And he asked her point blank, can you look me in the eye and tell me, Pastor, I'm going to hell and I don't care. And she looked at him cold, calculated, sneering, and did exactly what he asked. Pastor, I know I'm going to hell, and I don't care. He was at a loss. He didn't know what to do. What do you do when somebody acknowledges, so what if there's a hell? I don't care. I want to live like I want to live. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want anybody telling me no. I want to go for every thrill in life. I want to do it all. But a couple of weeks later, as the Holy Spirit began to grind on this young lady's spirit, something began to change in her. Something shook her life. And she came back and she sat in that pastor's office and trembling with tears running down her cheeks, something had happened as the reality came into her mind. She said, Pastor, I'm going to hell and I don't want to go there. As God opened up to her the reality. Now those of you who have grown up in Pentecost, full gospel churches, who used to preach hell pretty hot, Used to get a few people going to the altar. Then we got real sophisticated. We decided that you shouldn't ought to scare people into heaven. I want to tell you, if I can get somebody into heaven, I'll do anything legitimate. I don't know what this nonsense is about you hadn't ought to scare them into. When I was in school, and they were trying to teach us about safe driving and, and, and things, they showed us all kinds of hideous movies. This is what happens when you don't wear a seatbelt. This is what happens when you drink and drive. All of these warnings, you'd look at that and they were hoping it was shocking enough to make you straighten up and fly right. And the church can't do that. If you do not live for Jesus, if you do not die with Christ as your Savior, you're going to hell. Do you care? Does it matter? I hope the Holy Spirit takes that home with every uncertain, unsaved person today. I hope you do not sleep another comfortable hour of your life realizing if you should die tonight and you are not living for God, you are going straight to hell and there's no escape hatch. There's no back door. There's no coming back. It is the end. I don't preach that because people don't want to hear it. Number three, there is a heaven. Now, like the term hell, that we just use that as a convenient generic term, that we really should be talking about the lake of fire when we're talking about eternity, but we don't want to get that theologically involved with people. We just know when we talk about heaven and we talk about how they understand the concepts of eternity with God or without God. So we, we do a lot of shortcutting here. But heaven is a similar term. Because when Lazarus went to paradise, the way it's described there, 
He was in Abraham's bosom. And it was someplace in proximity to that department of hell where the rich man was because there was a great gulf between them. And they looked across the gulf and they could see each other. And Abraham protected Lazarus in paradise. Now, whenever Christ died, the book of Ephesians says, what is it that he ascended, but that he first descended and led captivity captive? And he moved those who were held temporarily captive in the domain of hell, even though they were not in the part where you were suffering and tormented. They died in faith. But hell was holding on to them just in case Calvary was a success for hell. And if Christ could be crucified and, and, and stay dead, they win. But he rose again. And hell lost the gamble. And what is it he ascended but that he first descended and led captivity captive? And so since that time, when we die, we still go to a paradise. But hell, uh, the, the paradise that was once located in proximity to hell has now been moved. And we still go to the place of peace and rest and comfort. We don't go through any, any torment as born-again believers when we die. So this word heaven... Once again, being a catch-all term is not the eternal place of our abode either. Because one of these days, God's going to move his headquarters from heaven down to earth. John the Revelator saw that happen as he saw this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And God is now tabernacling with men. And we return with Christ. We go to heaven. Your loved ones died this past year, these past five years, the past hundred years. If they died in Christ, they went to heaven. But Enoch prophesied, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. And Christ is coming back one of these days, and all of the redeemed who have then entered into heaven with him, they're coming back with him. They're coming back to rule and reign, reign with him. So when we talk about going to heaven, it's, it's kind of a sloppy thought. It's like we're not spending eternity in heaven, but we're going to go there and wait until the consummation of all things. I'm a little bit concerned about that horse ride back from heaven, but I'll deal with it when I get there. Jesus spoke about heaven, but many scriptures refer to heaven without using the word heaven. And I can give you some examples. Jesus said in the 14th chapter of John, we're talking about heaven. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. So he's talking about some place. It was not an earthly place. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. He didn't say heaven. It was heaven. We understand that. But he was making a description of he was going to take a journey. Going to go and prepare a place. Many mansions there. He'll prepare a place. He says, I'll come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. We also have description like Luke twenty three forty three when Jesus merely spoke to the man on the cross and said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And we have first Corinthians two nine, where Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, the heart of man has not imagined. What God has prepared 
for those that love him. Hebrews 11.6 says they, they desire a better country. A heavenly one. And then we get a glimpse of the use of the word heaven or a version of it, a variation. A heavenly country. God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he's prepared for them a city. But you get into the book of Revelation and you get a real distinct picture between what's going on on earth and what's going on in the heavenlies. And we learn a lot about heaven from those descriptions. We learn that there is a beautiful city there. We learn that God dwells there. His temple is there. His throne is there. We learn there's these massive gates of pearl, and the Bible says specifically of one pearl, not made out of a lot of pearls, one pearl. That's one big oyster. Walls described as jasper, streets of gold, and rivers of life lined with fruit trees whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. No more dying there. No more tears there. No more anguish and suffering there. How many of you have mental and emotional struggles from time to time in this life? How many of you have a discouraging day once in a while? How many of you feel like you have more discouraging days than encouraging days? No more tears there. No more suffering there. No more worrying there. No more aging there. It's a wonderful, 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 wonderful place. And every time we put another saint to rest, inevitably somebody has to get up and they have to say they're not suffering anymore. (laughs) They're healed. They're whole. They're well. All of that is taken away. They're not the old and the worn out that we knew them to be, but they're young and they're vibrant and they're well and they're whole. We learn a lot about heaven from the book of Revelation. And you have to understand that heaven, the magnificent place it is, is far beyond suitable and adequate for the faithful whose reward is there. I don't deserve it, but he's prepared it for me anyway. And heaven... The reward of inheriting heaven with all its beauty and its splendor. What it brings is balance and justice to every hardship, every trial, every injustice we have ever witnessed, we have ever endured here on earth. Think about it. Think about your life. Think about your experiences. And think about those times when you just struggled with trying to understand why bad things are happening to good people. Think about how you struggled with why God allows things to go on in this earth and doesn't stop them. Because that's driven a lot of people away from faith in God. I don't want to believe in a God that's helpless to stop the crimes and the insanity in this world. I don't want to believe in a God that allows a little baby to be beaten and abused and does nothing about it. They refuse to believe in a God that showers the blessings on the wicked, yet the righteous are afflicted with cancers and diseases and they die in poverty and the wicked live in comfort. They don't want to believe in that God because they don't think it's fair. 
They don't think it's just. But they don't understand that heaven and hell balance everything out. And nobody gets away with anything in this world when there's a hell that you have to go to for eternity. And nobody ends up on the short end of the stick, no matter what you may have felt deprived of on this world, no matter what you may have lacked down here, no matter what you may have failed to possess and enjoy, no matter how short life may have been or how tough it may have been, it all fades away when you step into the streets of gold and realize you made it to the finest place ever created for anybody. You made it. And all wrongs are made right. And you suddenly realize God is a just God. The great equalizer. You keep that in mind next time somebody tries to argue why they don't believe in God. They're not considering eternity, are they? There's no acceptable excuse for anybody to end up in hell. I don't want to make it easy for anybody to ever attend this church. Sit under my preaching and teaching. I'm not going to pave the road to hell for you. I'm going to put up roadblocks. I'm going to make it difficult. If you want to make an easy road to hell, go to another church. Don't come here. I'm not going to make it easy for you to go to hell. But there's no excuse for anybody to go. There's a stubbornness for people who refuse to believe it. People who are incensed by the suggestion that God would send anyone to hell, just, they just don't get it. Hell is real. It's as bad as anything you can imagine. But you don't have to go there. And I've heard people say, God doesn't send anybody. Yes, He does. But He doesn't send them unjustly. He sends them because that was the decision they made. It's very clear the Bible says that he will declare, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I knew you not. That's sending somebody away, but they earned it. They deserved it. Don't you try and soft pedal this. God doesn't send anybody. He is a just God. But he doesn't send you if you don't deserve to go. See, he doesn't have a flawed justice system like we do. There are innocent people imprisoned. They weren't guilty but they got caught up in the corrupt justice system. And they became victims. Innocent victims. And none of those failures exist in God's justice system. But God's justice is perfect. And the righteous are rewarded. And if the righteous are rewarded, it is equally necessary that the wicked are punished. Nothing less than that is justice. But people can't wrap their mind around punished for eternity. How fair is that? Well, if the righteous are going to be blessed for eternity, the only balance to that is the wicked are going to be punished for eternity. There is no justice if there's not equality. But God desires that everybody would be saved. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord's not slow about His promises. Some people count slowness. He's patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, the price of rebellion of mankind has already been paid for. There's nothing that we have ever done that cannot be forgiven by God. It's utter foolishness 
to know that we have a way of escape and not take advantage of it. It's like being in a burning building and you see the exit and you can make it, but you don't leave. It defies explanation for anybody who is headed toward hell not to take the escape. We can have salvation through Jesus Christ. But if we do not accept the free gift of salvation, there is absolutely nothing more I can do for you. And I started off this by saying, do you have an awareness of eternity? Because I think without that awareness of eternity, we get to thinking that life is all about getting up and going to work and making enough money to pay the bills and having enough extra left over to kind of have some recreation and treat ourselves a little bit. And whatever tasks are at hand for us, keep the house up, raise the kids, just get through life. You're not thinking right. You're not thinking right. Every day that you live, you are writing your map for eternity. You are charting your course. Everything you do, you are making plans for eternity. Even if you're not making plans for eternity, you're making plans for eternity. Financially, if you're not planning to be able to retire comfortably, you are planning to retire in poverty. And spiritually, if you are not making plans to spend with God, uh, eternity with God, you are making plans to spend eternity without God. If you're not planning on how to please God with your life and live the way He wants you to live, you're not going to make it. Shouldn't every day be an awareness and incentive? God, I want to go there. I want to go to heaven. I want to be with you. I want to, I want to have eternal life. Shouldn't everything we do reinforce that? And when you get ready to do those things you know that God doesn't appreciate, shouldn't you begin to think, how does this affect my destination? Can I really just go to church and raise my hand and go home and say, well, I've got that taken care of. Now I can go live any way I want to. Don't we have some obligation at that point to live for God? Don't we have some duty to come to Him and say, God, how do you want us to live now that we've made this pact with you? We've got heaven that is a prospect for us. We've got hell that we know every one of us have to avoid at any cost. It doesn't, doesn't it make sense that we spend our time here on earth making preparations for eternity? I know that some of you know how to make preparations. Do you have an emergency savings account? Some of you may not, but you wish you did. Do you have any property anywhere that's debt-free that nobody can take from you if everything crashes? Some of you do, some of you don't. You wish you did. Do you have insurance policies to take care of your loved ones if they should die? Some of you do, but some of you, all of you probably wish you did. How are you planning ahead here on earth? Do you have a structure for handling your finances this week? Even this week? If you do, you're planning. Do you spend any time whatsoever planning your comfort and your success in this temporary life and not one second plotting your course for eternity? That's poor planning. 
you're living one day at a time with no preparation for the future, no preparation for eternity, hell's got your name. We are free moral agents. That means you can choose your destination. And you're free today to choose heaven. You can choose hell. You can choose eternal life. You can choose eternal damnation. Every day you live, you're making that choice. And my question to you is, if your life came to an end today, where are you going? Have you laid up your treasures where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal? Have you? Do you know I have stood by the bedside of many a dying person and had the opportunity to ask this question of many, many, many people. If you should die before this day is done, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? And so many times I've had them look at me and say, I do not know. Every once in a while, they say, well, yes. I said, where are you going to spend eternity in heaven? I said, would you mind telling me how you know that? You know how many people don't know how they know that? It's because they want to. And want to is not enough. Would you mind telling me how you know that you're going to go to heaven? And then I get an answer like this. Well, I hope so. Hope so is not enough. Tell me how you know. And finally, when they admit, I don't know how I could know. I said, can I tell you? And I'm sorry, I I don't mean to be rude, but all you people who are preaching grandma and grandpa and uncle and aunt into heaven because you love them so much, you're not doing anybody any favors. You can put your head in the sand if you want to. And you can say, I love them so much they just had to go to heaven. But it's a wake-up call today that no man comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. I may unsettle you. I may anger you. We better deal with reality and quit dealing with pie in the sky and wishful thinking. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you can't climb over the fence, you can't get in the back gate, you must go through the door. And Jesus says, I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Are you ready? Are you ready? I want you to bow your heads.